Hey, this is Jeff and Jeremy from the Ultra Running Guys. We just want to thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We started this podcast to help you take your next step in your ultra running journey. We also want to make sure that you are aware that there are a few ways you can connect with us. So be sure to check us out on our Instagram and Facebook accounts, and you can head over to our website, theultrarunningguys.com, so you can see the live races that we're hosting. Lastly, don't miss out on an opportunity to connect with us on Patreon, where we'll be providing behind-the-scenes content, and this year we'll be spending a lot of time really building up that community. So thank you again. Be sure to like, subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends, and enjoy the episode. When it goes to get a buckle, miss a cutoff, or die, the miss the cutoff is just means I'm not going to quit. And the, the die means I'm not going to quit. It means if I'm hurting, if my knee hurts, if I'm my Achilles is ruptured, I'm not going to cap out and I'm not going to go get in the car. I'm going to walk until the race director says, hey, you, you timed out, man. Uh, sorry, <laughs> good effort, but you're crawling and that's not you know going to make it. I'm just not going to quit. And that's a standard that I hold myself to. And it's a standard that my dang wife holds me to when I get delirious and forget that that's my standard. And welcome back to the Ultra Running Guys. You got Jeremy Reynolds and Jeff Winchester of the Ultra Running Guys. And the reason that we're here is to help you take your next step in your ultra running journey. And so first, if you're listening, thank you so much. Uh, we would absolutely appreciate if you're listening on Apple and you're getting value, leave us a review. If you're on Spotify, go ahead and uh, you know give us the star rating. Those things really help us out. But here's the deal. So tonight's guest Got into the ultra scene in 2019 and has since completed over a dozen events ranging from 50K to 200 miles. It's a long way. Pretty legit. Uh, he's currently training for the Mid-State Mile, which we're really excited to talk about, which is a last man standing event that takes place on the infamous Murder Mile in Tennessee. He's an aspiring professional ultra runner, but he approaches races with a personal standard of one of three things. He's either going to get a buckle, He's going to time out on the course or he's going to die. <laughs> so it sounds pretty extreme, but once you hear his story and why he's dead set on sharing a message of hope, I think you'll better understand what drives him and why this is so important to him. So this is definitely an episode you don't want to miss. And with that, Justin Hamilton, welcome to the show, man. Awesome. I appreciate it, man. That's a great uh, introduction. I, uh, yeah, it does sound intense when you say I'm, you know, get a buckle, miss a cutoff, or die. And I always like to to caveat that with, you know, I am a father of two young kids. There is a, a certain limit. If a medical professional says you continue, your kids don't have a dad. You know, I'm gonna stop. <laughs> right. But right, uh, right. other than that, we're we're driving on. <laughs> that sounded kind of weak to me. <laughs> <laughs> He's calling you out. Thirty seconds. We got to get rid of the kids. Yeah, right. We got to get rid of the kids. <laughs> well, that mindset is. is fragile <laughs> but so so with that I said so obviously you know when you say that I don't think anybody goes yeah he's he's willing to lay down his life and leave his family out there but <laughs> but it gives some insight really into how you approach mm -hmm. things and so like we said so here's the deal dude I am super excited about talking about mid-state mile we want to get into some of your training techniques I think there's so much that people can learn as they're listening 
that said, uh, I think where we kind of need to start is understanding you, understanding where you come from. And you've got a pretty like gnarly story. We've listened to you, your stories on a couple of the podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some really good ones out there. And so I'll be honest, as we talked about this, it's like, there's so much to talk about with Justin, right? Like, how do we fit this all into one? And so what we're going to kind of do is put you in a place that we think um, is, is really a good starting point for part of the journey. Take us back to, there was a moment you were going through special forces school. You're in the Q course. You find yourself in a swamp. You look over at your buddies. And I heard the beginning of this, this story. Set that scene for us. Tell us kind of how that, that day played out for you and why that was a transitional moment in your story. Yeah, so that's uh, that's awesome that you you laid out those details, man, because it brought me right back to that moment. Um, I was in what we call in the military a draw, which for you know uh, people who are non-military, that's just a watery, swampy, nasty area full of vegetation that's impossible to like navigate through. But anyways, we were sitting in it, and my buddies were going off. We were pulling security while they were filling up canteens with this swamp water and they were just dropping iodine tablets in it. And that's what we had been drinking for a couple of days. And it was fine. Like we never got sick. And, but there was, there was times where we wouldn't even filter it with a t-shirt. So you'd get like bits of sticks and stuff in there. Um, <laughs> I was waiting for this water to come and I was like, man, this ain't what I want. And I was thinking about, I just bought a Jeep Wrangler and uh, it, it was a two door and it was a soft top. And I was thinking about driving around and drinking an ice cold Bud Light and driving around in my Jeep. So breaking the law, drinking and driving. This is what I'm imagining while I'm in this school with, you know, this elite school. And I make the decision right then and there that I'm going to quit. I'm like, well, this is it. I'm done, man. I don't, I'd worked for this for a year and a half. And I was about six months into what's usually about a two year pipeline. And I just gave it all up and ran up over the hill and quit. And, uh, why that's a turning point for me is because when I woke up the next morning, I felt an extreme amount of guilt and regret after just getting a little bit of sleep, just a tiny bit of sleep. Because we were out there, we were, we were doing what's called like, you know, the REM sleep where you, you fall asleep for like 30 minutes, you wake up the next guy and you just keep, you don't really get any sleep. So you start feeling weird. And once I got it, just a, like four or five hours of solid sleep, I woke up and I had a full belly and I was like, dude, that's the wrong decision. And I told everyone I quit for my family. And I did want to go home to my wife who she had just had our, our son and I did miss them, but there was really, I was definitely powered by the alcohol. I wanted to go home and drink. You mentioned that when, when you woke up the next morning after quitting you said you felt guilty what's the guilt from yeah so the guilt would be everything that my wife had sacrificed for me to be here so in order for me to go to the special forces school in Mm -hmm. north carolina she had to give up her orders to go to Mm -hmm. beautiful albuquerque new mexico uh, to be a recruiter which is a super cush job Mm -hmm. she had just done two combat deployments she was ready to take a break and instead, she got sent to Fort Bragg in the 82nd Airborne, which is known for rapid deployments, rapid training. And I got her pregnant again and sent her to this unit pregnant. Now she's pregnant with our second son. So that was just a tidbit of the guilt was that now I had made this huge decision, this huge family decision by myself to quit. 
you know, had I talked to her, she'd have talked me out of it, just like she does in everything in my life nowadays when I want to quit. She, she didn't have the opportunity. She had no say in this life-changing moment. And so there was that. And then there was my dad. Um, I no longer speak with my dad anymore. And that's something I don't really dive into just out of respect for him. But at the time we were really close and he was in the military for 30 years. And I've really felt bad for quitting because I knew he was looking up to me, you know, maybe not living vicariously through me, but he was really stoked that I was going to become a Green Beret. And I knew I was going to have to make the call to him. So between my wife and making the call to my dad, uh, I knew my mom would be happy. <laughs> so I knew at least had her. She would be like, oh, thank God, my baby's not going to die. Uh, and, you know, not that my wife or dad wanted me to die, but they they're just definitely would have pushed me to stay in. And uh, neither of them had a say in it, and I felt guilty. Is it the, the guilt driven from the idea of letting them down? Or because you Letting my dad them? down. Okay. Letting my dad down. And then for my wife, just the fact that she... I made a selfish decision, I think, you know, so she gave up all this in her career to follow me because she had faith that I was going to stick it out and mm -hmm. become a Green Beret. And then the plan was for me to become a Green Beret, my pay would go up a ton and then she would get out. And so when I quit, all that got just drastically, you know, life changing. Like she was now like, well, am I going to stay in? Because I'm the higher rank, I'm making more money. And then mm -hmm. that's what happened. So she ended up having to stay in. And uh, she ended up having to stay in an 82nd Airborne doing a job she didn't want to do. And um, that was all because of me, you know what I mean? So there was a lot of guilt for that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and so obviously there's a lot to unpack there. And the reason that we kind of picked that moment is because I also, when I heard you talk about that before, you, you know, you called that your first and last DNF. DNF, yeah. And, and so for a guy who's got a standard that we talked about in the intro, right, of, hey, there's only three choices here, but quitting is not one of them. Yeah, um, but alcohol is also a very big part of your story. And so yeah. as you go from the military, kind of talk us through, okay, so you, what does the next transition look like? How does alcohol play into that? And how does that just kind of, I guess, help take you along the journey to the Justin we know now? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good, so I'm glad you asked that because it's not something I've really ever hit on. So I got immediately out of the army, um, honorable uh, discharge. So I got all my benefits and stuff. And I got a job working as a military contractor, handing out tools to mechanics, because I was a mechanic in the army. But I wouldn't trust anyone with my training to change anything in my car. I'll put it that way. <laughs> uh, so when I got out, I didn't really, yeah, I had a relatable skill, but I didn't have any certificates that related to the civilian world. I was in the process of getting them transferred over so that I could get a better job. But so here I am, $10 an hour, handing tools to mechanics. And I was drinking every single night. Like when I would get home, I would start drinking and I had no purpose or like the special forces training kept me driven, at least physical fitness wise. And it kept me busy enough and on a routine and I'd go out in the woods for weeks at a time, you know, so I wouldn't be drinking. And it just kept me okay. And then now I'm at this tool shed and I'm just getting overweight uh, and every day hung over in the tool shed. And I know this little old lady I worked with in there, sweetest little Hispanic lady. She, I knew she knew because she, she would be like, that's no good, you know? And uh, I came home and I looked at my uniform that was on my bed. You know, I laid it out on my bed. I put my beret there. I was looking at my airborne wings, my air assault wings, and the American flag. 
And I was just looking at myself and I was just disgusted. And I was like, I knew I needed purpose. I needed something and some sort of authority over me, you know, something to drug test me or say, hey, you can't drink or whatever. And so I, I was like, I, I can go to police force because that's like civilian side, but kind of like military still. There's a brotherhood, sisterhood in there. And uh, so I asked my wife and it was always a big no. But at this point in time, and she doesn't ever really admit it, but I'm pretty sure she was like, he needs something. So she said yes when I asked her. And she was on her way out of the Army at this point in time as well. And we were going back to live in, uh, in Metro Atlanta. And so I just started calling around and I got, I got picked up real quick with the police department. And so I got out of the Army in February and by May I was in the police academy. And so that was the saving grace. And I had troubles in the police academy with drinking, but I had a really good instructor in there. And I had a really good three academy mates who never really said anything about my drinking, but they supported me and, and definitely made me, I don't know, maybe not purposefully, but maybe I felt bad. We you know I would come in hungover, stuff like that. And then they'd make comments or joke around, but and I would always feel uncomfortable. And I ended up quitting drinking in the academy for a little while. And we graduated, the four of us, it was me, Rania Ramsey, Habiba Shagban, and Edgar Flores. <laughs> and uh, just, you can tell by the names, the most diverse group of people ever. Uh, we had a, a Nigerian, an Atlanta native, Mexican-American, and then me, just a military brat from all over the place. And we were the closest group of people in the world. Best buds um, graduated. And... Habib and Flores went to South DeKalb, which I told you was the crazy, the craziest of um, the four departments in DeKalb you can go to. And Ramsey and I went to the safest of the four up in North DeKalb. And um, a year later, I got off, I was on day watch and I'm on my way home and it's 4 p.m. And I get home and my phone rings and it's Ramsey. And I'm like, okay, and I answer it. And I remember I said something silly. And she said, no, Hamilton, it's serious. And I was like, Oh my gosh. I said, which one is it? And she said, it's Flores. And I said, what happened? And she said, he got shot. And I said, where? And she said a few times, but in the face and me, I've been to multiple calls where people have been shot in the face. And I know generally how that turns out, which is not good. And so when she said that, I, I dropped to the floor and I remember my wife came in and I just mumbled to her what Ramsey told me and she just got the kids and like, let me be. And then I remember messaging my sergeant and he was like, if you can't emotionally make it to work tomorrow, I understand. And me as a cop and the alpha male that I you know, thought I was and had to, you know, keep serving and stuff. I didn't address anything. I just went to work. And so I remember no one wanted, so Flores pulled someone over. And they ran on foot and he chased them. And the guy turned around and shot him, mm -hmm. shot a few times. And like, if any of us tried to do that, you go get someone, you know, who's good with a gun and tell them to go take off running and then turn around and shoot and hit me three times. They're not gonna be able to do that. But it happened to Flores and this thug who doesn't train ended up killing him. Mm -hmm. So no one wanted to pull anybody over for a while because Flores had pulled someone over and got mm -hmm. shot and several was scared. And I went, the first thing I did was start pulling people over. And then I started just pulling a lot of people over. And then I just started really getting addicted to pulling people over and finding, you know, criminals and taking them to jail. And I got really good at it. And that, in the meantime, at home, I'm just drinking myself to death. And Justin, 
Can, can I interrupt you for just a second? I want to ask you about something you just said, and I could be completely off base, and so <laughs> tell me I am. Um, but you said that when, when Edgar died, that most people hesitated to go out and start pulling people over, right? But you said two things back to back that like my antenna just went shot up and it just got my attention. You said, not me. The next day I just went out and just started pulling people over as fast as I possibly could and just as many as I could and just kept doing bam, 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 just trying to pull them over. And then you said, and yet at home, I was trying to drink myself to death. And so the, the question I have, which again, could be off basis, is did you want to die? No, no. So when you were talking, when you were leading up to the question, what I was thinking about my answer, why, why I did it, if I had to put it one simple word, it was because I was scared to. I was scared out of my mind okay. to pull someone over. So the first thing I did was go make it happen. And it's called a 1048 in DeKalb. So I did my first 1048 after Flores died, and which is a traffic stop. And it, just, it was like it went away. I wasn't scared anymore. But then it was like I was addicted to it. I wanted to catch someone like, I don't know, someone bad, you know what I mean? I wanted to catch a murder. I, I just wanted the people I was catching, I wanted to get worse and worse. I wasn't alone in that. I had a lot of good other rookie police officers that were very proactive. So we're out there pulling people over like crazy. And that's what I was doing. And and I took notice from people. And then when Edgar died, I, I gave his eulogy and it was broadcasted all over and the entire department, it seemed like, was in the building. The governor of Georgia, Kemp, was there. And, you know, so everyone saw it. And it, I made a name for myself because I got up there and did that for my brother and for a bunch of people. And I ended up making uh, the position for homicide detectives came open. And I applied for it. And the mix between my proactiveness at work, pulling people over and making good arrests, and my doing the eulogy for Flores I ended up making the homicide it got me the interview and I you know I'm an intelligent person and I'm went in there and, and got the job man and uh so here I am this rookie cop with a homicide detective badge I didn't want to be when I was outside of policing and had to deal with reality you know because my my sergeant was right about going to work and operating I was busy. I was constantly doing stuff and I didn't think about Flores a lot. I didn't think about my drinking problem, my marriage that was in the tank, uh, the terrible father I was, son, brother, you know, I would just work. And then when I get off work, I would drink. And so I wouldn't, you know, there was no time to worry about who I was as a person. And then I was a good cop. So on the, on the surface, it looked, everything was okay. I was made homicide detective. I ended up solving my first murder in July of 2019. No, sorry. In June, June 2019, solved my first murder. In July, I get arrested for DUI. And when people are like, do you think God interjected in your life? I'm like, yes. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't necessarily with just the DUI. Um, and I'm not trying to go on like um, a crazy spiritual tangent here, but Flores died. That wasn't enough. I still continued to live my life dishonorably after my friend so honorably sacrificed his. So that wasn't enough. And then I hit another human being. So I'm the sheepdog. I'm a protector of humans. That is my job is to preserve human life and to protect property. And I ran over another human being with my car off duty. And I was arrested because the police officers on scene believed I was intoxicated. So they arrested me. And that wasn't enough because I got out and didn't stop drinking. I remember 
one sober day. When I say sober, I mean off alcohol. <laughs> uh, I had I was taking muscle relaxers still, and I managed one day without alcohol. And I was on this vicious vicious cycle to where I would wake up so hungover I would need a drink to just calm my nerves and stuff. And I was physically addicted to it. But I made a sober day. And it was July 24th, and then I woke up on July 25th and looked in the mirror, and I shaved my head. I remember shaving my head. I just read that book, Can't Hurt Me, from David Goggins. So <laughs> this is where I got the idea from. Um, I'm looking in the mirror, and I shaved my head. And I'm thinking about Flores, and I'm thinking about all this shame. All this shame starts just piling on me, man, like so much weight. And I'm just thinking about how he died. I'm literally visioning the scene. And I'm thinking about how I lived my life and how like I went and ran someone over. How did I repay him by just becoming a criminal? <laughs> um, and it was enough shame and guilt to, to take me to AA. And I went to AA that day and I got a white chip. And that was my first sober day. So that was, I mean, July 25th, 2019. And I haven't had a, a drink of alcohol since, man. And uh, so all that stuff got interjected with dang man you know Flores dying the DUI at work hurting another human and then finally it was the poison in me I had to get out to see what I needed to do and it was crazy because I didn't know I didn't know anything else to do but to run I had I ran an ultra in 2014 and I had a little bug in me from that still and I had read all the ultra books in the years even when I was overweight and alcoholic I was still keeping up with them and I knew I had something I knew I would never be fast like Jim Walmsley or you know be able to do that crazy stuff Zach Bitter you know 12 hour 100s but I knew I had something else in me you know a toughness and a grit that wasn't common um and I was like, if I can push myself, man, if I can get fast enough, I think I can become a professional ultra marathon runner. And I remember what I told left. My brother wanted to, they supported me, but they giggled. And I think one of them said, you know how insanely in shape those people are? <laughs> and, uh, and so the person telling this is 230 pounds of fat. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I don't blame anyone for laughing at me. My wife didn't laugh. She kind of giggled, but then she saw it was serious. And then she was almost like, oh, crap. Like, what? look what we're in for now. She went back to work, covered the financial loss that I had from getting fired from my DUI. And then uh, I just started running on a treadmill in my basement like crazy. And I ended up running a marathon. And at this point in time, I was, I was getting more back into the ultra scene on Facebook. And I was following um, East Coast Trail and Ultra runners facebook page and i posted my marathon on there i made a little youtube video and posted it on there thinking i was bad to the bone man and people just put all their awesome feats 200 miles you know the, i saw the zach bitter thing and i was just like wow <laughs> i'm so small and someone tagged the dreadmill 100 race on there and i was like well i got this connection with the treadmill now that seems pretty weird maybe i can do something with that. Okay. So maybe I could do a sub 24 hour one. <laughs> and I plan to do it on the anniversary of Edgar's death on uh, December 13th. And this would have been 2020 now. And so I trained and trained and ended up moving from South Atlanta to North Atlanta, right? The foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. So you get a lot of hill, hilly terrain. 
And I moved there and started running all these hills and I'm still trying to train for this Dreadmill 100. And then I meet all these trail people and really get into the ultra community by the help of this dude. I'll always give him a shout out. Phil Heath, man. He, uh, he took my hand. I was like this indoctrinated military guy. And he took me into this loving, happy place in the woods, man, where people were running and just not judging you for anything. And, um, so I got to fall in love with the ultra community outside of the love I found in pushing myself on the treadmill and getting PRs, the pride of wanting to stop during that marathon, but keep it going. I, I do just want to hear real quick, the first story. Um, and then we're going to get into some of the running stuff, but, uh, I, cause I loved hearing it before. Tell us about the first time you got picked up by a stranger as a you know prior homicide detective and what that was like for you that that was kind of your your big introduction to the trail community right yeah yeah so I had moved from South Georgia to North Georgia and I was in this neighborhood and I was just destined to meet someone who knew something about trails and so I made a running group on my you know for my neighborhood me I just moved there and made a running group and then this guy posts an invite inside that running group to go run on some trails and I was like okay this is it. I'm going to respond. And that was a lot for me to even respond. And I was like, I'll go out there and meet these people. And then he responds and says, cool, I'll come pick you up at your house. And I was like, what? <laughs> oh, man. And so not only now am I like nervous, it's going to be awkward. I'm going to be with this new person in their car. But I'm like, I just got done solving murders, kidnappings, carjackings, armed robberies. And this is like, this is exactly how you get one of those things done to you. And uh, I was like, well, I told my, I remember told my wife and she even thought it was crazy. She was like, well, uh, at least you're not driving. Like, you, and then we were like, well, I have my hands free. If I need to do anything, I could turn the wheel or punch him in the face. Or, you know, I'll be okay. And I remember like making sure the doors don't like have razor blades on the locks in case I try to pull it up or something. I saw that in a movie one time. And, uh, there was no razor blades and he ended up just being a really good human being named Phil Heath. Um, he, he brought me that day to a place in Cartersville, Georgia, uh, known as the Pine Mountain Recreation Area, not to be confused with Pine Mountain, Georgia. This is a little hump in the middle of nowhere and it is 650 feet of gain and a half mile straight up. And it's this little segment called Cornbread. And uh, it was a mountain bike downhill segment that, I don't know how the people ride their mountain bikes down it and live. And then we turned it into our climbing segment. And we remember he was like, hey, man, go out here and train on cornbread. If you want to become a trail runner, you're, you want to do this race in North Georgia that has all these hills, you need to train here. And uh, so we started training there like psychopaths. And then we became like these like cornbread junkies because it was called cornbread. And we would just go there, run up and run up and down all day long. And we got really in shape from running just the constant downhill. I thought mm. was not, I thought I know now was what really benefited me later on that repetitive going down so steep. And so, yeah, that was my first introduction to the trail community. And then now I'm have this excitement from, you know, the trail community that you guys know about. And I just got addicted, man. And I ended up running that that race and I was on pace to go like sub 20 for the first 50 miles um I did 50 miles in nine and a half hours it's officially my 50 mile PR and it was on a treadmill um and then 
I remember between miles 50 and 60, I started feeling some tightness in my left quad and then in my down to my shin. And I was like, hmm, all right, just run through it. You know, that military mindset, just run through it. And so I kept running. And then closer to mile 70, it started to get to where I couldn't really bend my leg much. And I was like, man, all right, I'll take my leg straight. And so I didn't know anything. I hadn't started my um, sports science uh, masters or any of my ultra coaching certifications. So I didn't know anything about anatomy. So I just taped as tight as I could over my knee, you know, over the kneecap, just tight. <laughs> and, you know, you're supposed to leave a hole for your patella. And I wasn't able to run or even walk like that. And then so here I am, I'm laying on the cold basement concrete floor. And I was, I was broadcasted live on Facebook. I told everyone said this was going to be much harder than I thought. And I was like, no, nah, I'm going to do this with my brother. And then I was actually contemplating stopping by like quitting. And I was like, well, because I'm hurt enough. I was like, I'm legitimately injured right now. Like this is a normal human being would stop. And even like a normal ultra runner who pushes himself, when they could tell they're probably going to injure themselves further, they would probably stop. And I was about to, and my wife hands me this manila folder and on the manila folder, it says for mile 50 or after dot, 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 dot. And it's typed out and taped to the front of this thing. So this is planned and prepped. And I was like, what in the heck is going to be in here? And I open it and it's just news clipping after news clipping after Facebook post, Instagram post after Flores died. And we did his like, um, you know, just everything people would say, you know, I miss you, Flores. This is what I'm going to do. Or, you know, these are the happy memories I had, you know, um, and it just brought, I didn't care about my knee anymore. I was like, I'm going to run this thing off. And I got, I, so we took all the tape off and that ended up making it a lot better. Um, surprisingly, I wasn't in a cast. And <laughs> I found out that if I could, so the treadmill, you press go and it's going to go or you're going to run or you're going to fall off. Mm -hmm. And so I found out I could do this like hop walk thing and it wasn't running and it was pretty dang fast walk. It was between a 13 and a 14 minute pace that I was keeping. Mm, and uh, yeah, while walking and my wife was like, the kids were now in bed. Um, yeah, she just put the kids down in bed. And I was like, can you sit in this chair and talk to me for the next 30 miles? And she was like, yep. And she went up and got all her little magazines and a comforter and a chair and, and sat there, man, and just talked to me. And I walked it out on that treadmill and got it done. So I made it for my brother. I did a uh, hundred miles in, <laughs> in a day on his anniversary of his death. And, and it really, at the time I, I was doing it sort of selfishly, you know, cause for, for me and for me and Edgar, it was selfish for us. I was like, this is for him and for me. And I didn't realize what it was doing for everybody else and what it would in return do for me. So it turned the day in from something sad into something that people were like looking forward to because I built it up and then they celebrated when I finished. And then now that the years go by, all the Facebook memories are just flooded with this dreadmill thing and people making posts about that. And so, yes, it's the anniversary of Edgar's death, but it's also this, this awesome celebration to see like he died, but then I have this new life. Like when he died, I was, I was dying too, man. But now he's gone, and here I am living my fullest. And it was because of him. He was the final push, you know. And I wear him around my wrist. And, and so that's when it goes to get a buckle, miss a cutoff, or die. 
the miss the cutoff is just means I'm not going to quit. And the, the die means I'm not going to quit. It means if I'm hurting, if my knee hurts, if I'm my Achilles is ruptured, I'm not going to cap out and I'm not going to go get in the car. I'm going to walk until the race director says, hey, you, you timed out, man. Uh, sorry, <laughs> good effort, but you're crawling and that's not you know going to make it. I'm just not going to quit. And that's a standard that I hold myself to. And it's a standard that my dang wife holds me to when I get delirious and forget that that's my standard. Uh, I have so many friends who they're like, yeah, if I call my wife and I want to quit, she's gonna be like, yeah, you quit and come home and do the dishes and take the kids. Cause I need to go do this, that, and the other. My wife's like, don't you call me and even mention quitting. Um, cause you ain't got a place to sleep. <laughs> uh, yeah, man, she pushes me. So, so yeah, we got the dreadmill done together. And uh, that was that beautiful story of the manila folder, man. I love telling that one. I'm going to say something that's okay, real quick. Go ahead. I hope, I hope you tell your wife that you love her just about every single day of your life, only because she is a saint. When I hear her steady presence in every bit of your story, having always been there um, through, through all the highs, but a lot of the lows and um, she doesn't let you quit because I don't think she wants to quit on you, which I think is fantastic just to hear her, her name keep coming up in small segments every time you talk about all the things you've been involved in. It's incredible. So kudos to your wife. I want to say off that, I want to say thank you so much and for bringing her up. Um, it takes a certain amount of insanity to go out and do the type of I'm not trying to talk myself up. I'm talking Stephanie up mm -hmm. to do the type of training I'm doing. It takes a certain type of mental fortitude and also grit and insensitivity. And you know what I mean? Uh, I'm a hard individual to be around sometimes. And she deals with all that craziness that everyone else sees the glory of like me finishing fierce dragon. Everyone's like, yes, she, for a year, she dealt with the obsessiveness that mm -hmm. I, I've, train you know what i mean and i so anytime i get to yes glory be to god for putting that woman in my life uh because <laughs> i'd have quit on life man if it wasn't for her well and she stuck through a lot i mean the, the series of events that has kind of played out and my probably favorite moment is the head shave moment because i'm fascinated by it it's like if you could take what you did on that day and tell somebody this is how you flip that switch because mm -hmm. there's a ton of people listening right now that may not be in the same situation but they're going i've been doing the same thing for a long time and i keep falling back into who i am but i really want to be somebody else right and so you had done that you'd had this pattern and then one day it was like drawing the line and everything's been different since and i know it's been been really difficult but for her to kind of stand through all that mm -hmm. i think is is pretty darn incredible one of the things that really jumped out, and then I want to get into some tactical stuff, but one of the things that really jumped out when we kind of had the back and forth and message, you stated that you use the mountains to practice running the quit out. What does that mean to you? I started doing this, I, the first time I ever did this, and anyone who's listening who knows the place I'm talking about, it, I did it at Bowling Park in Canton, Georgia. And I was running the loop out there and I'm putting myself there in my mind so I can tell this right. And there's a seven mile loop at Bowling, Bowling Park. But there's a spot there about mile three where you can split off and go on like a different trail, a different color trail. And so I'm on the orange trail and I'm like, all right, I can split off and that's going to take me home 
with three less miles. And I remember that day I was like, why do you want to do that? That's less, you know, you're supposed to do the seven. That's what you said you were going to do. Why would you have that weak thought? And this is ridiculous, but I was like, now you're punished. And then, so I made myself do the seven and then do more. I did two more. And then, so that day I was like, I was so proud of myself because I wanted to quit and I didn't. And I was like, I never really associated with quitting into training. I always associated with on race day. Like it was this dreaded thing that might show up on race day. Will I want to quit? I don't know. And then I found out, well, dude, I can make myself want to quit in training because at that point in time I was in a build and I had been, I was running probably 70 miles a week. So three less miles was a big reprieve. Um, and then, so now that I moved out into the, dude, the mountains, holy smokes, it is times 10. But then when I first moved out here, started running in the real, real wilderness, I run at two, three in the morning. And in the winter, especially where it's super foggy and you can't see, I le legitimately got brought back to my little kid days where I would turn off the light and run to my bed. And I would be like, I don't want to get out of the car. Why am I so scared right now? <laughs> like, and it wasn't like I was scared of a ghost or a bear or it was like everything. I was just scared of the weather, bears. Yeah, sure. Ghosts. I don't know. Uh, and my headlamp not working, getting cold, um, not finding a water source because I'm using a filter today and whatever it was, I would always make myself get out of the car, obviously. Um, and I ended up never pressing snooze. You know what I mean? I figuratively took the snooze button out of my life. And anytime I was like, I said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. And the mountains became just a, an amazing place to start making myself want to quit. I would be like, okay, let me see. Here is a 30 mile route with 10,000 feet of gain and loss. I know I can do that with poles, but I don't know if I can do it without poles. So today I'm going to leave the poles home and I'm not going to go put caches of water out there. I'm just going to bring this Sawyer filter with me. And so they're just making it as, as crappy as possible and went out and did it. And I remember, and oh yeah, I'm only going to bring goo and honey stinger, no real food. So this was going to take me 10 hours, I planned. And thank God I made my way onto the Appalachian Trail where there was trail angels because I'd ran out of food and had like a lot of ways to go. And they gave me all these oatmeal cookies, which got me home. But so I remember every time I crossed a hardball road, I had to feel I could stop here. I could call Steph. She would come pick me up. I don't, I'm 15 miles in with 7,000 feet again. You know what I mean? I, I don't need to go. To, this is a good training run. Um, but I also said I was going to do 34. Okay. No, keep going. And then every hardball road I crossed, I went through that. I would want to quit and call Steph and come pick me up because I was out. Of, I had a good excuse. I was out of food and I was like, man, come on, just keep pushing. And this is just an time to one training day of a lot of training days I have. And so I wanted to quit a million times. And then I remember running into Vogel. I almost wanted to cry because I ran from my house to Vogel State Park. And I almost wanted to cry because of how hard it was and how much I wanted to quit, how many opportunities I had to quit. And, but I didn't. And so I used the mountains to train to quit out of at least that day. And I bring that into like, I bring that into my training, man. I, I know what it's like to have that feeling of it's that overwhelming feeling of, I want to stop and I have a reason to. And so I bring that into my, all my races, all of them. And it helps me because 
the biggest thing people are scared of when they go to try to win a race or to do a good time is blowing up to getting GI issues, blowing your quads out and not being able to get that buckle. Well, to me, I'm like, I'm going to get the buckle, man. It's going to happen because if I run the first half of this hundred miler in nine hours, the cutoff, I have 10 hours until the next cutoff. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I can take a nap and then get up, eat a <laughs> warm food, get a professional massage and then walk it in. And so, and I'm, I am one of those people who, you know, I, when I watched Western States, this last Western States, and I saw those pros, Hayden Hawks and Camille Her Heron, they didn't quit and they just ran it in, man. I, that I had so, I, yes, I was super proud of the winners, but I can't tell you who anyone besides Jim Walmsley was that, that did good. But I can tell you Camille Heron and Hayden Hawks, I thought they were going to quit and they didn't. We had the same conversation after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was, yeah, so much respect because it's hard. It's, it's way harder, right? Trying to hold that line. And then when you don't make it, you go, oh, I'll just try it next time. To hold that line, blow it up and then go, all right, it's going to be a long day, you know, but, let, <laughs> but let's go do this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it helps. It's so every time I go on a podcast and I sound like talk about my standard. All I'm doing is putting another brick on top of the brick, the foundation, which is my standard. So now, instead of having three podcasts out there where people have heard my standard, now I'm going to have four. So when I go to a race and I want to quit, even if everything inside of me wanted to quit, that awesome thing that we all have called pride and ego, <laughs> I right. remember these podcasts. You know what I mean? I remember telling you, Ryan Pluckelman. And everybody else that I'm not gonna quit, yeah. and so it well, helps. The good news is we don't have a lot of people to listen to ours. That's just true. kidding. <laughs> no, but <laughs> but it's interesting you just said that because yeah, there is an external pressure that you you put on yourself by by putting that kind of statement out there. But um, that's not what prevents you from quitting when you're in the middle of a training run that's 30 miles, like you just described. In those situations, you don't care what anybody else is, is going to think because they already kind of understand your excuses that you would have but why can't you quit personally so i i have a million reasons man so during fierce dragon 200 i had more reasons in my life to quit a race um and so my reasons to not quit i would just i went through so many of them and i just compounded them all and put them in a toolbox flores is one i'm still paying him back i feel like i feel like i haven't built a platform big enough to tell his story from. And I feel like if I quit, I damage that. Then there is all the people that I hope to inspire. So what I'm doing is more than running to me. And it might look on the surface like I'm just out there training, but what I'm out there doing is using my body to help other people because it's the only thing I know how to do and it's keeping me healthy, sane, and I'm getting messages to, from people who are saying it's helping them. And I feel like God has continued to just <laughs> pave the way for this the journey that I'm chasing and on. When I quit in training, I feel like I'm quitting on, not God, because God knows I'm not quitting on him, but like he'll help us move mountains, but he wants me to show up with the shovel. Mm -hmm. you know what I mean and I feel like I'm not throwing that shovel on him 
and all the other people. So when I started this ultra dad journey, when I changed my Instagram name to ultra dad, I had 300 followers who were, you know, friends from school, work, just Facebook friends on Instagram. And then now I have like 1200 or something. I don't know. So that's like a off the top, we'll say 800 people who follow me because of the story that I'm telling. That's 800 people that I'm letting down if I quit. And so that's just three reasons. Those are probably the three biggest ones. Um, a fourth right up there with those ones is the fact that it's so easy to quit. It's ridiculously easy. Um, <laughs> let's put it in perspective for this. So I'm on the murder mile last December trying to break the course record. And I remember thinking, I'm like, I remember, I, oh, it was like a epiphany I came to. I wanted to quit for a second and I was like, nah, we're not doing that. And I was like, if I did quit, let's play this tape through. Okay, I quit. I sit down, my legs don't hurt anymore. Within an hour, my stomach settles, I eat some warm food and I regret quitting. All right, sweet. That's too easy, not doing that. It's too easy to stop in a race, self-induced agony. We have the option to stop it at any moment. For me, the story I'm telling and everything I'm trying to do is bigger than stopping. Like I said, if it's life-threatening, I'm going to father my children. Um, but other than that, man, I don't, I don't, I can, I, I can't find a reason to quit. Like I can tell you a million, million reasons why I can't, but I can't find one to quit in the moment. I really can't. Not bigger, not bigger than the, those four things that I mentioned. Well, and it plays into so. You mentioned it for everybody listening. It's at ultra underscore dad underscore. So at ultra dad. But if you go look at your profile, it's going to say hope dealer. And so yeah, that's the thing. And we talked about it in the intro. Like, why is this so important to you? You can hear it in your words. Mm -hmm. Like you can hear the conviction. And obviously I would imagine everything you've been to, to the moment you found yourself in the swamp and you did make the decision mm -hmm. to quit, then I'm sure you can look back on to these things that have built up that now gives you the strength. What I'm excited to see is as you carry that into mid-state mile, because um, you just talked about the murder mile, you've been there before, you train like a madman in the mountains. So, you know, there's, there's probably not many people that have the background that are running 30 miles with a filter, you know, to get their water, right? If you can explain kind of mid-state mile, set the scene for us. We know it's the last man standing, but if, if nobody's ever heard of it, kind of give the quick summary. Yeah, it's in 32 days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so close. I think it's less than 32 days, isn't it? June 18th, right? Okay, yeah. So my tracker's, my tracker's fast. Yes, so 32. <laughs> quick, those days come fast. 14 of those days are tapered. That just made you uh, anxious, didn't it? Thinking about that. He's not stressing at all. He's just <laughs> drinking it down. I'm just drinking water. <laughs> um, okay, so the murder mile, yeah, it's in 32 days. And it is a 1.1 mile loop in Franklin, Tennessee ran by Rebecca Jones and John Cox. John Cox is the referee. He wears the referee shirt out there and you probably see him in pictures uh, for sure. 
And Rebecca's got that super bright red hair. Um, anywhere she goes, you'll see her. Um, and in that 1.1 mile loop, it is a figure eight. And in that figure eight loop, you will get 340 feet of elevation gain and loss. The most important part of that statement to me is the elevation loss. And you said it, man. You said in my me being out here in these mountains does give me an edge up for sure, without a doubt. And I moved here for that reason. And for mid-state mile, the last man standing version on that loop, you must complete it within 20 minutes. So you have 20 minutes to complete a 1.1 mile loop with 340 feet of gain. If you are fit, you can just about hike that. You got 20 minutes. All right, they blow the whistle, you take off, you run your mile, 340 feet of gain, you get back in 18 minutes, you take a drink of water, eat a goo, that whistle is blowing, you got to go again, same thing, and you do that. Starts off, I think, with 75 people, and you do that until there's only one left. The first year went, I believe it was 98 miles, which would have been around 30,000 feet of gain, and then the second year went 122 miles, or 121 miles, which would have been right around like 40 to 50,000, 45, 50,000 feet of gain and loss. That's the murder mile, and that's a mid-state mile version, the last man standing. And, and for anybody, listen, the first time I saw it was actually Jesse Itzler doing mm -hmm. stories there because he was there with Chad Wright and kind of that crew, and it was fascinating to watch. And so mm -hmm. if anybody is plugged in, that's the race that they did that. Also, I know that you've got a relationship with Salty Britches and Amy Tucker, yeah. and, and I've seen her you know, be out there and it just seems like one, a very cool atmosphere, but two, I mean, it's legit. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, how are you feeling about it? Are you excited? Are you nervous at all? Are you just focused? It's hard for me to be real honest without sounding extremely arrogant. So when I first came to Midstate, I did. I was like, I got to beat Chad Wright because he was the, the wizard of the murder mile. You know what I mean? If you were going the Midstate mile, he was the guy with the target on his back. That's just, just, just what happens when you put yourself in that position. And so, yeah, when I first started the training and up the Tennessee mile, I wanted to go there to beat Chad Wright. You know what I mean? Because that his name was just on the title. Right. And in the process of the training and the going back to the murder mile and being a competitor in there instead of just a spectator, dude, I learned it was just, it was so, this wasn't about any individual. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about Chad Wright. Yes, he did. Thank God he went there and Jesse Etzler because they made it famous, which in return, I've learned about it because of the same reasons you mentioned, Jesse Etzler, Chad Wright, Amy, and all of them. And I was like, man, this is so much bigger than me. And, and the reason people run 122 miles or 45,000 feet of gain or however much it was is because of the 75 men and women that were in there pushing them to that point. And I went there and spectated and I was like, man, we'll come back here and, uh, I'm going to win. I'm going to win this race, man. And uh, every day I think about it, I see myself winning every day when I'm running. Um, and it, it might not be how it plays out, but that's the, that's the tape I play <laughs> right awesome. now. Uh, so what would be more important to you, winning or breaking 122 miles? Oh, winning. So, I mean, so I've talked about this with my wife. Mm -hmm. So if I go, so let's say I win with 98 miles mm -hmm. i'm gonna be super stoked yes but i'm also a course record type of guy 
And so I'm gonna be bummed out that I didn't get able to go past this point where dad went, <laughs> Chad Wright, you know what I mean? Uh, and then he wouldn't be able to come back to me with some banter and be like, better luck next year. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, uh, Justin, you don't have to stop. My wife and I have talked about that. Um, how <laughs> if it went to 98 or 100, if it went under 122, would it be egregious for me to say, Rebecca, John, can I keep going to break the record? You know what I mean? Or would that be like too self entire like look at me? You know what I mean? Well, the only tough part about it is that it's still, it could never stand, right? Because the reason that he won is because somebody else did not continue to push. That's always the unknown is. Because he would have gone farther, further. Right. Because right, right. 122 was, was somebody else's limit. Correct. And, ah, man, that's such a good point. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it makes it hard free. to say, even if you pass it, then you have to start going, well, how much further do I think he could have made it to make it? You know what I mean? Which is. So this has, this is since, so we're talking kind of like past mentality now, but because this is since past, but I definitely thought like I needed Chad Wright to be there. I needed right. him to be there, Mm-mm. but I don't. That, that was my, up until Tennessee mile. I was like, I need Chad Wright to be there to go that far. But that was such a naive mindset. And I was a new ultra runner. I am a new ultra runner. So I don't beat myself up too much about it. Of have negative, you know, intentions at first, whatever, but, um, you know, glory be to God for me finding, you know, my true purpose and the true reason and the backing of this race during the training for it. You know what I mean? Um, it took, you know, less than a year for me to go full circle and start training for the right reasons and picturing, I mean, it'd be crazy. I'd be lying to say if I don't still kind of daydream about running with the pale horse, man. But, uh, and that's just because it's the legend of them, you know right. what I mean? But there's people like Aaron Dana. There's people like Brandon Michael Clark. There's people like Justin Ford, Luke. Oh, my, I can just name a million of them. There's people a few like others that I think are also going to go um, pretty far. I'll say Aaron's been training there, hard. There are some people that are going to push um, with you. And the thing about it is mm-hmm. it's just growing. The, the last man standing concept period has been growing in such popularity that there are other – Justin's and Aaron's and, and like you said people that may show up that you just don't know who's out there that um, it'll be interesting I, I'm super excited to kind of keep track of it you know it's always fun to to watch I know we're getting a little bit short on time but I want to make sure we touch on some some tactical stuff because you are so disciplined and intentional at least from outside looking in on how you do things and you've already talked about the over preparedness so somebody wants to train in the mountains, they want to know how to protect their legs. What do you think are some of, what are the things that you do? And what would you say are a couple of the critical things uh, for like mobility, protecting your legs and knees, any other specifics that you're like, man, these are my foundation for mountain running. Yeah. So the biggest thing is you need to, in my opinion, you have to match your gain with your loss. So a lot of people from mid-state, at least when I watched them training for Tennessee mile and looked into people's training after I spectated the first year, they did a lot of gain. They did a lot of treadmill, weighted treadmill, ton of stuff. And, but they didn't do a whole lot of the loss. So they weren't training their legs for the deceleration, for going downhill, for breaking. Um, They were just training for going up. And so they had half of the formula, right? And then, so, outside of that so if you can match your gain with your loss 
So I go to a climb that I can go up and down and I do repeats on it. So my gain is always matched. Like I've wanted to do the treadmill. Like I need 17,500 feet of gain this week. And I have a wedding to go to in Virginia this weekend. <laughs> so I'm like, I could get on this treadmill behind me and crank it at 15%. I could knock 5,000 feet of gain out in two hours on this thing and be, you know, and have these numbers done, but I can't go down. So to me, I, for mid-state, I cannot do that. I won't do it. And I'm not telling other people not to do it, but my over-obsessive mindset is like, nope, not, not happening. Um, just that's how much this race means to me. So what do you do if you can't run in the mountains every day? Mm -hmm. I'm actually in the middle of putting together a video for this because I've had so many people ask me about the mobility, strength, and stuff that I do to help protect my knees. But a quick overview, there are two apps. One of them is called Romwad and one of them is called GoWad. And they're both CrossFit oriented. And you look at the most fit people in the world, they're putting their bodies through the biggest ringer is these CrossFit people. And they do this because they put their body through range of motion workouts. And what that is, is basically you're actively stretching and going through poses and opening up your hips and doing stuff. I can get into poses now that I couldn't fathom doing, you know, a year ago. And that is a big one. Yoga. So you can take, you don't want to call it yoga. You can just call it stretching for a long time. Um, <laughs> you don't want to be spiritual about it. You don't have to be, uh, but I, I would honestly, most important, I would download those apps. It, to me, it, you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not implementing some type of range of motion workout into your week, at least once or twice a week, man. And I do it every day. And then you're going to want to implement some type of strength resistance for that going to, to mimic that going down. So you could, uh, the box jumps but not jumping, you just do step ups, step ups and step down, step ups and step downs. And then you go to stairs. So one of my favorite things to do, and you can use trekking poles or you can just use the railing. And you take a step that like, I really want this video, I'm gonna make this video. So you just take a step down and the idea is to bend your knee and get your knee over your toes. And so you're really flexing your knees and the patella tendon there and stretching it. And I just, to encompass that all into a brief statement would be I am very hyper-focused on mobility and recovery. And my mindset is that you cannot overtrain if you do not under-recover. As long as you recover enough, it is impossible to overtrain. And that's a play on words, but it's also a true statement. If you look at my training right now, I'm in my peak weeks right now. And if you look at my peak weeks now versus a year ago when I was peaking out for Cruel Jewel, I am training a third less now, miles wise. But I am doing three and a half to four hours a week of mobility. So I might not be running those four hours, but now mm -hmm. I'm doing mobility and strength. And I always feel scared saying this because if I go to mid-state and blow out my quads, then what the downhill guy blew his quad out? But you know what I mean? <laughs> I, it's given me an edge up everywhere I've went. I am able to keep up with people who are much, much faster than me on downhills. Mm -hmm. And I've had people who are professional ultra marathon runners tell me, yeah, man, you got a good downhill game. And it's because I deliberately train for the downhills. I go around and if there's a, a really steep climb and it has a crown on it, I go on Strava and I make a segment for the downhill <laughs> mm -hmm. and I go and I make the credit, you know what I mean? I 
I deliberately train for downhill running and it benefits me, man. That's a lot of good tips on um, the importance of elevation gain and elevation loss. I think a lot of people will, will think in terms of training for um, elevation from a gain perspective and not the loss. So I think yes, you're yeah. really hitting it hard there. I think it's great. Just out of curiosity, what's your go-to nutrition? So I'm not going to say their brand name because they won't respond to my Instagram <laughs> messages, but I use a gel, a little gel. The brand name is only two letters. The first one's G. That's awesome. Uh, so I make fun about So I am, uh, I'm very open with reaching out to companies and I'm no one yet. So rightfully so I get ignored. Uh, no, I use goo. I love, absolutely love goo. Hopefully one day they'll reach out to me and give me a discount. But I take it a goo about every 25 minutes, regardless. Mm -hmm. And then I drink tailwind. I will go from one soft flask of tailwind to water and tailwind and then to water. So I don't get that flavor fatigue. Because I used to just do tailwind and try to just get all those calories mm -hmm. and carbs in. But I would get flavor fatigue, um, meaning like, you know, you get that weird cotton. Now nah, I'm tired of this sugar in my mouth. And so going to the water, I would be like, oh, I want that flavor again. And it was a good, I thought it was a good trade-off for me. And then the goo every 25 minutes is kind of like a um, fail-safe. It's like, just in case mm -hmm. I'm not paying attention to my body enough, my timer, I literally have a watch timer that goes off and says, eat, and I uh, eat a goo. But nine times out of 10, I'm pretty dialed in with mm -hmm. how my body is. And so I'll eat honey stingers too. Goo and honey stinger are my two main nutritions. And it took me a long time to get my gut to be able to accept those because I, I would hear Carl Meltzer be like, yeah, just put some goo in your pocket. And I'm like, what? How are you not going to puke your brains out? Like, you know, that's not going to, I'll get GI issues, you know? And it, it, I had to trade my gut just like I did my legs. And I remember, and Fierce Dragon is when a turning point, I couldn't eat solid food. So all I could eat was goo. I saw, sold out Walmart and Blairsville. Oh man, I, I was eating so every 25 minutes, I was eating a goo for 113 hours. Yes. <laughs> That's a lot of goo. <laughs> yeah. I could have done that. Not at all. Goo and honey stinger. Goo, honey stinger, tailwind. That's it, man. So outside of nutrition, what are your other kind of favorite gear or must-haves when you're out doing big efforts? Yeah, I'm big on a waist pack combined with a um, vest. So for Fierce Dragon, I was real set on having my food in my vest. Mm -hmm. and my water on my waist because in my vest would be warmer and so my food would be like my goo wouldn't be like laffy taffy my honey stingers wouldn't be freaking and you know inedible and so I had all my food up here and all my hydration on my waist and now that it's summertime it's swapped I generally keep all my hydration off my in my vest and I keep all my fuel on my waist pack mm -hmm. and I use a naked waist belt and it is I've used the Ultra Spires, the Nathans. I've used everything. And then Naked is, in my opinion, the best. It doesn't bounce. You, and it's like you're not wearing anything. It's weird. Mm -hmm. And you just stuff stuff in there. And, and it's this belt that looks like a piece of fabric, but I can fit three of those big Solomon soft blasts in it mm -hmm. with goo and my phone. And it has trek and pole holders on the back. But so I'm mm -hmm. big on displacing that weight on big efforts. Um, waist pack and... Uh, a vest as far as shoes i'm big on the speed goats just because they have they have a lot of cushion but we i went to this training camp out in new mexico sponsored by north face and they gave us a free pair of the north face victus 
think hope I'm saying that right. And they are, they have like a meta rocker in them mm-hmm. and they, I ran in them the entire week. So I ran 50 miles in them, put them in the box. And I said, those are my mid-state shoes. Wow. Um, I like them more than speed goats, but I just can't afford another pair right now. You know what I mean? My wife says you got to train like you're poor. So, <laughs> so we're running into speed goats, uh, up until mid-state and then I'm going to, you know, I'll put some miles in them again, just to make sure I still like them, but yeah, that's it, man. Uh, I don't, I don't have any, like I said, I'm not sponsored by anything. I have salty britches who has just like my wife pushed me and pushed me and pushed me. She pushed me to go to that trail camp out West. She, you know, make sure I have more than enough chafe ointment. And dude, I've got off the phone with her the other night. I spoke to her for 45 minutes. Amy of salty britches. Just, she's like a, a life mentor, a second. I wouldn't want to say trail mom. Cause she ain't old enough to be my mom, but you know what I mean? Right. She's uh she's better than a sponsor, better than, you know, she's awesome. She she comes and she comes with chafe ointment, so that's a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> and she's been incredibly kind to us. You know, she gave us salty britches for our first race. She sent us a bunch to hand out and she's just always been so responsive and like you said, super kind. And I'm a huge fan of salty britches doing last mans and stuff like that. To me, that's a must-have. I'm sorry, I forgot Exoskin. I ordered a pair of them a year and a half ago. And I have not wore another pair of shorts since. Uh, wow. And it got, it took me a little while, but I am the guy who wears just the extra skin. I don't wear shorts on top. You know what I mean? So it's a little graphic, but uh, it gets the job done, man. And I, I do, if you can penny pinch, you know what I mean? Go in, in your couch, get the money, get the coins, save up and, and get some extra skins. Use, you can use my code ultra dad and uh, for 20% off, man, but it's life changing short. It is a life changing seriously salty britches the things that they're a very good product and i think they work it works fantastic for chafing um, at all body parts right i had a i learned something about them at the umstead 100 you know we got some of the sample packets from them we also got the tubes as well but with the, um, i had a few of the sample packets left over and they are a pain in the butt at, you know if they get cold to try to get that crap out but what i learned was that if i carried them in my hand for about like 10 minutes and by the time I was ready to do that, so I would just take off from the aid station, carrying them in my hand, knowing that by the time I was ready to apply, like, you know, several miles down the thing, that they would be, you know, warmed up and they didn't have warm. any kind of So you can actually hand, hand warm them up enough, as opposed to at the aid station, trying to crack it open and pressing that out as hard as possible. But because um, yeah. once so it's really, on, it's good. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, I'll say two things about Salty Bridges real quick, and I'll give one bit of advice. So Salty Bridges, what I tell my wife, is one of the only things that I put on after I started chafing that mm-hmm. gave relief. Mm-hmm. Most right. things only work to prevent. And once you got it, you put it on and two seconds later, that vest is rubbing in. Salty britches gives a dang barrier, man. It does. Um, my piece of advice I was going to give is caveat off of uh, Jeff talking about holding it is the exoskin. They're so tight to you. You just take that little to go pack and you slide it under your short leg right there. It's right up against your leg. And it, it gets warm as, as I'll get out. You know what I mean? That's what I put. Yeah, yeah, the goal is just to get, get a little bit of warmth to it. And then it's, it's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did. Well, look, man, I know uh, we've gone a little bit longer than we even told you we were going to go. But there's so much to your story. I love your message of hope. I, I just think it's so important that everybody understands. Because they, if we go look at Instagram, if we see the things that you're doing, I think it's so easy to assume that that's just what you've always done. Right. And so when we get a chance to hear where you've come from and your message of, you know, when you, you wrote to us and you said, if I can go 
from where I was, mm -hmm. then anybody can make that change. And I think that's just so important. So for everybody <laughs> listening, you know, most of us aren't going to be trying to set the course record at, you know, on the murder mile, but any of us can take the same lessons and the things you talked about running the quit out, doing the hard things, um, just understanding that we have the potential in this. So thank you for sharing that mm -hmm. for everybody listening again, just thank you for the time. And if you found the value, you know, go leave the review, reach out to Justin and make sure that you're paying attention to the Mid-State Mile, June 18th. And also you've got a couple other big things coming up. You've got the Georgia Jewel again in September, Fierce Dragon, which is the 200 miler in January. So you're going to be doing some big things, man. So for the Ultra Running Guys family, just reach out and, you know, say hi, welcome. And uh, dude, we just appreciate you so much. Man, I I appreciate you guys. I'm so always so humbled when someone wants to talk to me on one of their podcasts. And uh, I've been following along with, with Jeff for a while now, but thank you guys for reaching out to me, man. It gives me purpose. You know, just it's another solidifier that what I'm doing is, is obviously affecting somebody positively. So it helps me keep that snooze button out of my life, man. I appreciate it. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. All right, man. We'll be talking soon. And cut, cut. Here comes Justin. Can you guys hear me? No. What? <laughs> I'm most excited about the game at the end. It doesn't mean I'm not looking forward to what we're going to talk about, but the game at the end is my absolute favorite because um, I just have a lot of fun with it. Don't Dude, hang up. Don't I almost hung up. Don't, yeah. I know. I saw you reach. I was like, he's reaching for it. Like he's going to just close the thing. He's exhausted. And nobody has actually ever heard those except for those who are our patrons. And um, so you don't know what to expect. I do. Oh, perfect. You can pick any band to play at your funeral. Who do you pick? Oh, Grateful Dead. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense, too. That's the perfect one for a funeral. So who gets second place at the Mid-State Mile? Oh, man. <laughs> Whoever didn't train as hard as me. <laughs> By the way, you're at the top of a mountain. How do you have such good Wi-Fi? So it's windstream. Oh, it's really good. Make a high-pitched sound. <laughs> that works, brother. That works. That's really good. Nailed it. That was pretty good. Nailed it. I would say this is the most fun I've had on a podcast. Oh, that, that I'm not surprised. That it was because of the game. It is because of the game. The game mixed it up, man, but you guys are just awesome. I loved it. I loved it. Can you guys hear me though for real? We got you loud and clear, man.